Let us pray. Father God, we are going to look at your word this morning, and we come to it with our own presuppositions. Help us to acknowledge that you are the master carpenter, that you have organized your church in such a way that it is a blessing to the community if we heed your instruction. Help us to challenge this word to challenge us where we need to be challenged and help us to have wisdom and to hold strong to the word in places where it is also clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is, as I just prayed, he is a master craftsman or carpenter. He's a God who cares about how structures are built and he cares about their intricate design. We just even were reading about King David and God having a dialogue about a house of, house of cedar, he's eventually going to give very specific instructions on how it should be built. And so we are his church in which the gates of hell will never prevail. And the craftsman has a purpose to his design. And yet oftentimes, how do job sites look with carpenters and with craftsmen? mid-project, or if you haven't completed a project. Maybe some of us remember, for instance, though they were very good at cleaning up after themselves, when Joel and, and Greg and Kathy and Terry Long and, and Jim Spielman and Zach Steich all kind of helped out in different varying ways in order to put the structures downstairs together that were built in the summer. But yet, Sometimes it looked like a mess. And honestly, when it comes to this letter of Timothy, a lot of times people get kind of preemptively frustrated with this letter. As we've talked about, they criticize certain sections of this letter. And it would be a little bit like if last summer when that building project was going on, I pull Joel aside and, and take him to task because, Joel, we can't have all these two by fours here. Without insulation, or where's the trim that's supposed to complement the drywall? Where's the paint, Terry? Though I probably give Terry a hard time because I'd like to give Terry a hard time. But the reality is I would be the fool. I'm not embracing the re I don't, I'm ignorant of what the full design looks like. This letter is often criticized for being misogynistic for being uncaring, unthinking about women. And here we are in chapter five today, and we're also gonna look back in chapter three. And really, I hope we appreciate God cares quite a bit about the finishing touches of his church. And a key component of the finishing touches of his church are the women of the church. And as this passage will uphold, most especially the widows. They're, they are to be especially honored, the true widow. And so let us embrace the fullness of God's design. So we begin with the first two verses. And this is a, these are verses that even Karen, as she started her announcements, or, or Pastor Bruce and I often emphasize 
people emphasize throughout our community. We call it a church family. We just uh, welcome James into the church family. And really, you could look at these two verses and see this is a biblical pattern. This is a church family, a beautiful church family. And the older men, men are to be like fathers in the community. The younger men are brothers in the community. Older women are mothers in the community. And younger women are sisters in the community. And in the year of our Lord, 2022, I want you just to appreciate this morning the general nature of these categories in God's Word. They lack the overly nuanced segregation the world adores. The overly detailed human classifications. It's not that the world of the ancients didn't have these categories. They had tons of categories. And the people within these categories were far more oppressed than anybody with a Twitter account can ever imagine. They had Jew and Greek and barbarian. They had slave, bondservant, free, full-fledged Roman citizen, soldier. They had ethnicities. They had racial segregation. The world has always loved categories to define by and to measure by and define and conquer us by, conquer our unity. The Christian church, however, is to stand uniquely apart from this overly nuanced pattern of segregating titles of the world. We as a Christian church are to be far more generally minded in how we love and engage one another. And this is a breath of fresh air we cannot forget about in our modern world. The church was to be a different kind of place, a united family under God, indivisible by fruitless divisions. And then we have in verse 3, a most key transition in this passage. Verse 3 begins with, honor those who are truly widows. Notice, we've had one verse on men. Now we're going to have 15 verses on women, 14 of which widows. We just got finished with the broad strokes of the household of God. Older men, younger women, younger men, older women, younger women. And then who is the first group singled out and mentioned for a special place of honor in that household? It's the faithful widow of the household of God. Paul will spend more time talking about widows than he ever talks about, for instance, deacons in this book. And practically speaking, he talks almost roughly the same amount about elders as he does widows. And, and before we start kind of nuancing how God talks about window, widows, let's understand a little bit about the life of the ancient widow. Now, we were just in the book of Ruth, and in the book of Ruth, we're getting a picture of the widow under the ancient Israel culture. It's a little different in the Greco-Roman Empire. In the Greco-Roman Empire, the woman, it was all about the dowry. The dowry was the prepayment life insurance policy that would have to be negotiated for the man did not have to include his wife or often common in that day of polygamy wives into his inheritance. He could entirely exclude his wife from the inheritance. And so the dowry was her policy, her life insurance. 
if she had a, let's say, a, a father who negotiated the dowry and he was a bad negotiator, she could be left in a hard situation. If the husband died earlier than they ever anticipated, she could be left destitute. If just the, she married a poor man, she could be left destitute. It, it was the great humanitarian crisis of the early church of the Greco-Roman Empire. And that's why even the establishment of the office of deacon comes in order first to help the widow. First and foremost, because they have a treasured, honored place in our society. So God cares about widows. And verses 4 through 8 give instructions on what churches must be aware of and pastors must be aware of when it comes to looking out for widows. The church needs to be aware of whether or not biological children or grandchildren are taking care of the widow. We are blessed here at Old Goshen. We are truly blessed here at Old Goshen Hoppen. We do have many widows who God uniquely honors in our midst. And I know not of not one of you precious widows at Old Goshen Hoppen who does not have children or grandchildren who look after you. It's a testimony to the investment of love that you made within your own households, but it's also a testimony to God's love for you. Don't forget that. Never in this life forget that. I know, of course, not from personal experience, of course, but from testimony, it's often hard to feel loved as a widow. Life can quickly become very quiet, but God is there to meet the widow. And if we are a biblical people, we want to celebrate when we hear biological families are caring for the widows. Celebrate that camp quality throughout the family and the gift of that quality and the giver of that gift, which is God. Then Paul further narrows in on what the true widow is. It isn't that Paul is not arguing that all women who, who lose their husbands aren't widows, but there is a most at-risk kind of widow. The church has to be on hypervigilant in making sure uh, they are taken care of and to love upon. And that is the believing and praying widow whose family still abandons her. These are faithful women who cry out to God, and yet their biological households do not care. When such women exist, the church must take the role of Boaz and make sure the widows glean and are supported by the church in absence of provision. There is no congregational vote to be had. There is no debate. This is a bare minimum requirement of a faithful Bible-honoring church. But then verse 6 talks about another group of widows, self-indulgent widows. What would a self-indulgent widow be? Remember back to the ancient the description of the ancient widow. The self-indulgent widow would be a woman who squandered a more than adequate provision in overindulgent living. This would be a woman who in one sense was like the classic lottery winner who wins the big prize. And then three years later, after winning a hundred million dollars, they're filing for bankruptcy. God basically says actually to 
to such a win- widow who Timothy might see squandering and over in an overly lavish lifestyle, her finances, she's not really the kind of candidate the, the congregation is obligated to take care of. Instead, verse 7 makes clear in an ancient kind of way, give her the ancient version of a Dave Ramsey course she, <laughs> before she blows it. The church doesn't have to step in in this reality because it's free, of course, to do so, but it's not obligated. And then verse 8 comes or comes through, and it gives one final qualifying standard for Timothy to be mindful of. If there is anyone who claims to know Jesus but won't care for their own relatives, especially direct members within their household, you are regarded by God as worse than someone who is an unbeliever. We tend to think that like Richard Dawkins is the worst kind of person in the world. It's not what the word of God is saying. The worst kind of individual is someone who claims to know Christ and yet refuses, refuses to help out a family member in their greatest hour of need. Now, as someone who did homeless ministry, For quite some time, this has to have a qualifier. Because at times, family members will try to manipulate in help. I remember, for instance, we had a a nephew who once called my wife and I up and wanted help to go to college. And to help to go to college, we said, great, we'll buy, we'll cover all your books. We will cover every book for college. Well, no, 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 no. I need a car to drive to college. You can get a bus pass. We'll buy the books. We're not helping buying a car. Uh, and said some nice, not so nice things. Hung up the phone. All right. Did they really need our help? No, they didn't really need, the, the individual did not need our help. They didn't want our help. Doing homeless ministry, I, I remember the station police chief loved our ministry, loved our ministry because his son frequently would come out to our events, receive food from us. He would occasionally stay at our clean and sober living house. And it wasn't that the police chief did not have an open door to his son. He always welcomed his son in. The son, he was in his 20s. He was of sound mind. He was really a pleasant individual. He preferred the streets. He refused to Go back into the father's house. That's not the type of individual God is talking about here. He's not criticizing that police chief. What he's talking about is someone who will not extend love to a family member who truly comes without conditions. Think of Ruth. Ruth came with no expectation but a willingness to do whatever was necessary in order to provide for her and Naomi and That's this kind of individual we are always to bless. And if you don't want to bless that kind of individual, you might not know the gospel. Because as the word of God says, you're worse than an unbeliever at that point. So now here we are. Paul has just laid out through the spirit of God, what kind of widow the church is to be most concerned with and how, what are the, who are kind of the widows the faithful widows of honor, the churches, and ultimately churches need to be mindful to love well. So let's do the first of several thought experiments. If a Buddhist widow came to our church today, needed our help, 
Is old Goshnopter required to help her? No. Now, saying that, you know, I, I would suspect we would be willing to help her, but we would not be required. Remember, this is the bare minimum. This is not open for debate. And so now that we are through the first eight verses of the 16 we'll cover in this chapter today, it's now took time to go back to a passage I skipped over back in chapter three of this letter, talking about deacons two weeks ago. And uh, I will say up front what I'm about to teach in the next couple, few minutes. I know a few of you are going to shake your head the whole time and say, I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. And you know how I can say this? Because you could go on sermon audio and find a sermon I preached six years ago in Las Vegas, Nevada, at Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. And that Kevin of Spring Meadows PCA took a totally different position on this text than I now am compelled to take. I will admit, though, I know both Kevins personally, and this Kevin does know Greek better than that Kevin does. But that doesn't mean that, that this current Kevin's right. And I hope even if you disagree with me, you still will not question the fact that I definitely believe this word is authoritative. This word is authoritative. Even if we come to different conclusions on certain matters of doctrines, if it really troubles you, my view on this afterwards, I, I welcome you to come to my office and, and to, we'll have a discussion. Convince me the old Kevin was right. I am completely fine with that. Also, let me make clear the following. There are many congregations and many denominations I could not encourage them the following way I'm about to encourage old Goshenop and Reformed Church. One example of this is the Anglican Church. How the Anglican Church has defined deacon, has created a role where there is headship invested in that role. They have matters they are in charge of over and against others when it comes to spiritual care. And so context matters. I am not preaching at Westminster Abbey to the Queen of England, and I don't see her today. I am preaching to you, members of Old Gosh and Hoppen Reformed Church, and uh, preaching with the new bylaws in mind, which are available to, to scan over. And if you got the email, I cover them for us. And so now that we've done a lot of preaching, let us get into the passage. I've given the disclaimer. Let's quickly cover the entire Old Testament when it comes to the matter of deacon. There is no office of diaconate or deacon in the Old Testament. It does not exist. Unlike elder, which is literally found, you, you, either Genesis 2, maybe somebody would debate Genesis 1, but starting in Genesis chapter 2, Throughout the entire book, there, is, there are no Jewish deacons in the Old Testament books. Who is the first specific individual identified in the scriptures by the unique title of deacon? Jesus. The first specifically named deacon, according to the Bible, is Jesus Christ himself. He's the deacon of headship and the only deacon of headship, in my opinion. And I believe scripture bears this out. 
I'm not saying that Christ wasn't also an elder, but we're not talking about elders right now. We're focusing on deacons. Now, what if you were to search, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It was made around the time of Alexander the Great. What if you were to search the word deacon in the Old Testament? How many results might you pull up? You pull up four. There are four times in the entire Old Testament the word deacon appears, and it's only in one book. It's in the book of Esther. And the deacon is, the deacons of that book are those who are tending to the king. That king who is the husband of the Queen Esther. And, and those who are around his royal courts. And every time the king asks a question, or every time the king has a request of them to go do something, they go, here I am, Lord. Uh, here I am, Lord. Here I am, king. What, what do you need me to do? Or I'll go do that. Sure, yes. That's what the role is in the Old Testament. When the king calls for you to do something, you go do it. That's the extent of the Old Testament on deacon. Now let us get back into 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Before reading this, I admit right off the bat, if I'm on a deserted island and I only had an ESV Bible, I would never come to the conclusion I now have. But there are other translations like the NASB, which is usually considered more word for word than the ESV, that puts this, the key verse, as we'll find, in a different way. The key verse will be verse 11, but I'm going to read the whole passage. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, it's going to be the key word, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 really is the key verse in the whole argument. Some will fixate on, on verse 12. I actually think the chapter we're in today and other realities make, ultimately, we all have to agree, even the debate really centers on verse 11. And the debate is this. The word used in Greek for wives, as the ESV translates, can be either wives or women. And so the Kevin of six years ago in his sermon that's still available on Sermon Audio at Spring Meadows would tell you that he would agree with that ESV translation that it translates as wives. The Kevin of today, who does, as we earlier said, know Greek a little bit better than the previous Kevin, thinks translations like the NASB, all versions of the NIV, the NRSV, the Amplified, and I could go on are better in this regard. But let's actually begin supposing that the Kevin of six years ago is right. It's wives. Let's say it's wives. This is how the most conservative theologians will interpret this verse then. They have to interpret it this way, and I'll get more into that in a moment. They'll say, Paul 
lists an extensive list of qualities about the wives of deacons because at times those wives have to step in and help out and serve as deacon. So basically, sometimes there's a switch. It's sort of like in baseball, you know, when the main pitcher is out, can't go anymore, you throw in the relief bullpen. And this is why I struggle to believe this more and more. In the earlier verses of chapter 3, the position of overseer of the church, elder, practically speaking, the wife of an overseer of the church has a lot of free reign, if you agree with the ESV's translation, when compared to deacon wives. It's not specific on the qualities of an elder's wife, but a wife of a deacon? If we translate it wife? So Rob's wife, Jesse's wife, Bruce's wife, my wife, have far more freedom to be whoever they want to be than a male deacon's wife? If I am to agree with this reading, that seems more and more odd to me than it did six years ago. Paul says about the wife of an overseer of church, nothing really about their personal character. But then a few short verses later with deacon, Paul says, wait a second, wait a second. Just wait a second there. We need to clear some hurdles with those wives. As someone who has served in churches with robust diaconate ministry and robust elders ministry, I would doubt I'm the only... I would doubt if I'm the only one who has witnessed that an elder's wife has far more potential to pollute a church than a deacon's wife. I would suspect a lot of other people sitting in the pews know exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Can you enter into another thought experiment with me? Going back to the most conservative reading of 1 Timothy chapter 3, that Paul cares about male deacons' wives because occasionally she gets to fill in. Right now, I've got a busted eardrum. I have been paranoid during the entire service. My volume control is all off the bat. I can't hear really anything. You know, Pat asked how my ear was, I think, this morning. I said to Pat Frederick, what did you say? I had no idea what he said. You know, Bruce is down helping the church he helps with. If the diaconate role is so interchangeable, and you can call her the, the relief bullpen. You know, should I just call up my wife to start preaching the word up here? No, you're biblically mindful. Absolutely not. I actually, I've had a policy. We've had a policy in our marriage. I never even let my wife help me compile or, or listen to a sermon before I preach it. I, I, do, I take that role. That's my role. That's my job. That's what I've been called to. That's what I've been set apart to do. We would never do this for elder, and yet the conservative reading embraces this fluidity where occasionally it, re it really has to because it can't account for the unique demands of the deacon's wife over and against the elder's wife embraces this fluidity of, of the substitute relief deacon. I, I don't, I, that is less interesting to me today than it was six years ago. And so I would actually argue 
that both the quote unquote more conservative view of wives and the view of women, both practically speaking, end up having women serving as deacons. And I tend to think one is far more honest to acknowledge what women are doing, but also further protects the church in making sure that the right kind of women are in diaconate service and diaconate kind of work. And speaking of crediting such work to women, both the Apostle Paul and Luke are willing to credit diaconate-like work several times in Scripture to women. The most notable and best example, of course, is Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, who is a woman not only called the deaconess by the apostle, but Paul entrusted this deaconess to carry his magnum opus letter almost 2,000 miles via Roman road to Rome. The book of Romans, besides Phoebe, Tabitha is noted for her work with the poor and widows in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 40. That's three chapters after the establishment and creation of deacons. And why were they established and created? Well, for the same thing Tabitha's doing. For their work with the poor and the widows. In Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. We read it was often women who both served and even funded Jesus and his disciples as he ministered during his three years. Jesus was let, literally letting the women, if you, uh, like a wooden translation could be, deaconing him, deaconing him in the Greek with their own purse to fund the ministry. Is that diaconate ministry? Seems so to me. Not to mention in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, we have that, we have Dorcas who has servant-like works of charity. Deacon at its truest definition is headed ultimately by the servant King Christ. And the Bible does recognize after Christ, both men and women attending to and engaging in diaconate-like work. This particular truth is not biblically debatable and makes deacon different and distinct from elder, where the exact opposite is true, where there is no example of a female elder appointed by God and acknowledged by God as such or his prophets and apostles. It's not really fair to argue until the cows come home, there is no calling a woman elder in the Old and New Testament, but also not acknowledging the fact that the same statement cannot be made of deacon. By the way, what do the pagans say about this period of time? There was Pliny wrote the Emperor Trajan in 115 AD. So you're talking, you know, 85 years after the formulation of the New Testament church. And he actually, and, and Pliny was a pagan, a godless pagan who loved to persecute Christians, and he talks and, and, and take delights in the fact that he tortured two deaconesses of a congregation. Why would the pagan lie? And so, 
if you still agree with the position I had six years ago, again, that at least hopefully you can appreciate there is an argument to be made for deaconesses. And again, remember, I don't think this is true of every church because a lot of churches have defined deaconess in a way where it gives it headship. I, I wouldn't say every Christian church today can embrace deaconess or the concept of deaconess because of what they have put into their church constitutions. But now let's go back to chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. Paul now pulls out a resume for those widows we were previously talking about who are of Naomi and Ruth kind of stock. These are widows who are impoverished by factors entirely out of control. They're godly women whose families will not support them. And Paul states, let a widow, widow, and this is the key word here, be it enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Enrolled in what? And, and notice the list of qualifications this widow must have. Is this just like a social security, a monthly check in the mail with a high bar? I doubt it. I doubt it for two reasons. One being biblical, one being historical. First, biblical. What's the biblical principle of work in the Bible? If you're not willing to work, you don't get to eat. To do what? I said, eat. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Not willing to work, you don't get to eat. And while, of course, I'm not arguing that widows go to the mine and go, the ancient widow was going to mine bronze, we do have historical evidence for the type of work they might have done from Polycarp's letter to the Philippian church shortly before he was martyred for the faith. Polycarp studied under the apostle John, and he wrote the following of this order of widows and of his congregation, that this order of widows actually had a service role in the church. Employees of the congregation, so to speak, on their payroll. Polycarp is up there with Clement, with Timothy, with Irenaeus, and as the most well-known elders of that second generation of the church. And he mentions the servanthood of this order of widows, writing the following. Our widows must be sober-minded as touching the faith of the Lord, making intercession without ceasing for all men. So basically prayer warriors. He employs them as prayer warriors for the church. Also abstaining from all comedy, evil speaking, false witness, love of money, and every evil thing, knowing that they are at God's altar. Basically, he, he employs the women into the community of women so that they might bless the community and, and help fight things that God hates like gossip and division. The underlying implication from Polycarp's word is, words is that widows were at work being prayer warriors, and helping bless the church in a variety of ways. And it fits, and their qualities that they need to live up to fit the qualities that match, really, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, that we had previously talked about. This is why even the father of the Reformed movement, John Calvin, during the Reformation, had to admit that he thinks we lost something here in history and revived an order of widows, revived women being servant, servant, ser uh, service servants of the church, prayer warriors of the church, under the care of the church for the 
good of the church. He gave them no headship in that role. And yet he saw the tension of the scriptures that there is something that the master craftsman has set aside for women that the medieval church and many eras of church history had long forgotten about. So the biblical church should not only have a vessel to protect the most at-risk widows, but also allow women to serve within the church in their servant labor. I will, however, admit, just like the variety I talked about on the position of deacon in our modern church, like that Westminster Abbey has a different position than Old Gosh and Oppenheim Reformed Church, there is this reality in the early church writings. There is not uniformity on deacons. For every quote I could give from an early church father on deaconesses, I can give an argument from silence in another quote. And so let me boil all this information down. It's now time to ask ourselves, what's more likely? Paul and Luke got sloppy, either directly by calling women, naming women, and calling them deaconesses, and crediting their work with deaconess kinds of work. But it's not supposed to ever be that way within the edifice of the church, or that over the course of time, as years turned into decades, as decades turned into centuries, and centuries turned into millenniums, eventually fewer and fewer congregations heeded the principles laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 5. First, even elders and overseers cared about those cared about giving honor to women who are servants to the church, forsaking the woman's role in providing unique finishing touches to the Christian church, casting aside servant women. Six years ago, I would have answered differently, as I've admitted, than I do today on these two options. But that question is to all of us. The deacon role needs a lot of correction within the Christian church. For some congregations, that means stop allowing deacons to basically function as elders. For some congregations, that means do not let female deaconesses hold headship of a church or an over a church. Cut to other congregations. To us, I believe here at Old Goshenop and Reformed Church, maybe we should give a second look to this 1 Timothy, both chapters 3 and 5, like John Calvin had the courage to do, and say, you know, maybe the church has forgotten something it once understood about women's roles of servants, service and servanthood within the church and how the master craftsman wants the structure of the church to be built out. And so don't agree with me if you don't want to. That's okay. But at least acknowledge I made a biblical and historical argument. Here, I went to places like the Gospel of Luke, the Book of Acts, First Timothy, the Book of Romans, the Book of Esther. I went to quality historical sources and second-generation men like Polycarp. I could have gone to Clement of Alexandria as well. And even the founding theologian of the Reformed tradition, though he's not the only one. But let us draw to close, not on this debate, though this debate matters with the correct building of the Lord's Church, but let us close on Christ. Christ charged all his followers, the greatest among us, to have 
deacons' hearts. This is undeniable, and it can be found in passages such as Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. And the fact is, we can never do this on our own without his headship as the deacon of deacons. We needed him to show us what it means to be a true servant of the king by becoming our suffering servant. He is the diakonos theos, the servant God. Let us then remember his service and remember how we, his family, distinguished first and foremost by his unifying servant-like love for us, can now be joyously told to go and serve one another as Christ first served us. Whether young or old, man or woman, Widowed, singled, or married, Christ has been a good and perfect servant for us. So let us go, therefore, out this morning in service of him. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, if I have not spoken correctly on your word, let it be ignored. But if there is truth to be found in the word that was preached, let it be something that we consider and meditate upon. How did you want the finishing work of your church to be accomplished in this letter that takes such great care to describe the roles of elder and deacon and widows and those in service to the congregation and in service of our God and King? And so God, please direct our paths, guide us in these things. We ask this so that we might be a more perfect church in loving the perfect servant for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.